0: All right. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Okay. Pastor David Whitaker of Morgan Hill Bible, glad. You're on sabbatical, right? That works perfect for today. Everyone, greet uh, lead pastor of Morgan Hill Bible Church, D- Dave Whitaker. Um, the, He's on. We're actually talking about like sabbaticals and Sundays and Sabbaths today, so it's perfect. Now, you can't go to your church if you're on sabbatical if you work there. It's part of the rules because then you just start working and then, you know, someone wants you to hug them, but you see them coughing and they have the flu, so you're trying to do that like bless you from a distance. Very problematic. So uh, thank you for visiting us this morning. Uh, I'd like to start off with one of the most fascinating occurrences in what we'll call a literary iteration in Scripture, and it has to do with something the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul writes roughly two-thirds of the, the New Testament, so he's a major player, major player, so we're not just talking about a little bit of material, we're talking about a significant amount of material. Now, there's a phrase that Paul the Apostle uses, my Lord, and he uses it one time in Scripture, one time. Probably wouldn't have guessed that if you think about all of Paul's writing in the New Testament, He writes, my Lord, once. How many times does Paul, the apostle, write the phrase, our Lord? 53. Now, this has something to do with one of the most significant and pressing problems currently in church life, specifically American church life, and it has to do with what we'll call hyper-individualism. Now, before I kind of critique that, a brief note. Individualism is not something bad. In fact, it's something good. It's established within the first few pages of the Bible. It's an idea that's predicated upon the notion that all people are made in the image of God, and as an individual, you have significance and worth independent of anything. However, like any good thing, individualism can go too far, and it becomes a bad thing. So in our culture, we wrestle with something called hyper-individualism, and just kind of like a a thought journey to kind of see how this plays itself out in our culture, but we've joked about this before, but think about, and some of you are not going to know what I'm going to talk about at all. Some of you are going to remember it, and you're going to think it was just like two years ago, but it was actually like 20 years ago, and some of you are going to remember stuff before even what I'm talking about, depending upon how old you are. (laughs) But you guys remember when you had to have uh, a home phone line and that was it? No cell phone? No personal phone? think about it. Most everyone in this room has a cell phone, your own personal phone. But there was a time where there was only such thing as a family phone in the house. And you had, remember you had to... Now, if you're, you're the, some of the young people, you have no clue. We'll talk about it after, after service. We can we look at it in the, the uh, um, uh, you'll probably in college take a course on American history. They'll go over there. Um, but you go like, like and the, here's the thing, though. Remember this? If you happen to have more than one home phone, anyone in the family could straight up pick that phone up and listen in. And, and if you're a parent, you remember like mom and dad, it's like boyfriend or girlfriend. You put your hand over it, hold your breath, and try to listen. Or some of you remember in your, in your teenage years where you were calling like a boyfriend or a girlfriend, uh, you'd try to get that little stretchy cord thing. You'd take it because the, fo- the phone's in a position. It's not, it's not wireless. Wireless doesn't exist. And you'd walk with it like all the way across the hall and shut the door and try to cover up so mom doesn't hear you saying, no, I love you more. No, I love you more. Now, before that, some of you might remember. Now, this this one predates me. This is earlier than me, but from what I understand, it was like the same way the same phone line worked for a house. It worked for the block, so like a neighbor could pick up the phone and listen into you. How weird! Like young people, how weird is that? And how could you not resist? <laughs> like I'm going to listen what they're talking about. I hear breathing, Isaac, is that you again? Oh, yeah, I've been here for 20 minutes. Can I add a little something? Okay. But now, you have your own personal phone. And what do they call it? An iPhone. Sorry, Google folk. It's an iPhone. Or you have an iPad. For you non-Mac people, you PC, what is that? personal computer. And so this, this kind of language of individualism has come even into the church. And it's, it's, it hasn't just only like snuck in. It's actually a part of the foundation that we stand on. So even the way we talk about biblical things like the salvation experience, we import individualistic terms that really aren't found in the Bible. So I'll give you an example. Think about like standard language used in church culture to describe the salvation experience. We talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus or acknowledging Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior. Now, again, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with that. Jesus, you need to know Jesus personally. You need to personally repent. But it, it's strange that when scripture uses language, it doesn't really use those categories. They're not wrong but the emphasis in scripture isn't gonna be on my Lord, it's gonna be on our Lord, it's gonna be a corporate thing. Or how much we emphasize that Jesus lives inside of you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is absolutely true and a great thing, but more than talking about Jesus being inside of you, the Bible talks more about you being in Christ. And when you're in Christ, you are part of the body of Christ, the family of God. It's a household image, it's a family image. And so what happens on the large scale is Christianity becomes a private, individualistic affair for many people, divorced from church and divorced from the people of God, and that's a massive problem. We're going to get a little bit more into that, but first, we started this series last week. I want to briefly review for those of you who weren't here and kind of go forward from that. Last week, and the message is online if you haven't listened to it, but We laid out this idea that currently culture is telling every single person two messages and there's this sort of surface level or we'll call it a superficial level message It's on the 10th floor of a tall building and then there's a foundational message down here at the bottom and Culture is pounding these two messages to you all the time. The problem is their intention and the other problem is that one, the superficial one, rests on the 10th floor of a big building, but the other message that's in tension with this message is the foundational message that holds the whole building together. The superficial message is this, one on the 10th floor. You are special, you have a design. There's a plan for your life. Your life has meaning and purpose. You know, you hear that? You're wonderful, life meaning, purpose. You were meant to be among the stars that type of language. However, the foundational message that culture is also telling you again and again and again is, you are a product of random chance in a universe that's caused by process of random chance. There is no soul, you have no soul, there is no spirit, there is no God, there is no objective morality, love, things that you think are real and matter, things like love and romance, those are just biological reactions in your body that are meant to make you bond with someone socially so you can reproduce and propagate your herd or tribe. And so up here, you're told you have meaning and purpose and you're special, but at the foundational level, you have no soul, there is no spirit, you are a product of random chance. And because of that, this bo- bottom message is, is more foundational. It becomes like a default operating system. It's what people believe like on a subconscious level. And at a whole nother time, we could talk about how that influence kind of like a nihilistic view of the world from our people and our culture. So what we laid out last week was that you do have purpose. You do have, your life does have meaning. You, you, your life has design. There is a planner behind it all. And that if you want to truly live a life of meaning, you should seek that which is worth the most meaning, and that which is worth the most meaning or holds the most meaning is God and himself and his will for your life. And so it's kind of this big philosophical claim, but like everything, Jesus summarizes it succinctly and perfectly, like in a few words. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all will be added unto you. And so you seek that which is worth the most meaning, and then you let all the other things fall into place in their proper domain. Now, last week, we also established that whenever there's a Christian message about like purpose, and, and you were God has a plan for your life, immediately everyone wants to jump to like, I'm gonna go change the world, I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna start a non-profit, I'm gonna do some big, giant thing for God. And as we said last week, truth is, and then, we, then reality hits us. It's like, oh man, I gotta wake up tomorrow for a nine to five that I hate. I don't get paid enough, I'm barely making it, and all your visions of grandeur about changing the world come crumbling down. And that's okay, because the Christian faith shouldn't be romanticized, so you have to be some like magical world changer going around the world saving lives. The Christian life starts with taking... The smallest area of your life, the smallest fear, and we put a circle on the screen, and saying, how can I do right in this small area that I, that I actually have responsibility for? We joked around, there's a, a psychologist by the name of Jordan Peterson, and, and his, his kind of big line that he says always like, hey, before you go try to change the world, why don't you go home and clean your room? Like, start by cleaning your room, And so last week, we challenged everybody, what's the smallest area where there's sin in your life, and you have direct response, and you can actually change it. You can make a difference in that, because he who is trusted with little can be trusted with more. So maybe you just do right here, and then God gives you a little more more responsibility, God gives you a little more responsibility. So we challenged everyone, what's the small area? This week and for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at three other kind of spheres in our life and challenging you to do right in those areas by taking small baby steps, just small baby steps. The three weeks will look like this. We're gonna talk about the purpose inside, the purpose outside, and the purpose alongside. You'll hear about the other two in the coming weeks, but for today, we're talking about the purpose inside. What I mean by that is the purpose inside of the metaphorical church walls. Like specifically Sundays, like here, what we're, what is the purpose behind this regular weekly rhythm we call Sunday? Because most of us are not truly seeing the purpose of Sundays. The hyper individual individualism has come in, the busyness has come in, the priorities have shifted, and Sunday no longer holds the place that it used to. Now, if there were massive cultural forces and spiritual forces at war with Sunday, you wouldn't expect them to come out one day and be like, oh, we're gonna try to do away with Sundays. We hate Sundays, we hate that there's this thing called church on Sundays, so we're just gonna do away with it. It's not the way it would work. It would be like a slow, steady, strategic erosion and decay. And for those of you who have been alive long enough, you've seen it especially for those of you who remember people listening down the block to your phone calls, you're gonna observe this better than most. But even in my lifetime, I remember for instance, we never had Little League baseball on Sundays, ever. We wouldn't even have stuff on Saturday evening. It was all Saturday morning or a weekday because Saturday was still enveloped into the orbit of Sunday morning, like Saturday night was still sacred. And some of you remember, like, even when it was a crazy thing back in the day, businesses for-profit closed down on Sunday. It was crazy. And for the younger generation, this is a world that does not exist in any way, shape, or form. But it's been a slow, steady decay. Currently, roughly more than 80% of Americans claim to be Christian. Of that 80%, 40% say they go to church only 20% actually go to church. So 80% of people claim to be Christian, 40% claim to go to church, and then actually only 20% end up going to church. Now, of the people who attend church, what they call regularly and have some evidence to do it, the research shows that they are now attending a little less than once a month. Now, this is where for some of you, you don't think I'm attacking you if this is you. Just wrestle with these thoughts. You come into church less than once a month, and in your brain, it registers as I'm a regular church attender. When polled about why you don't go to church when you claim to go to church regularly, the number one reason people gave was personal priorities and busyness. Now, do you know that true to be of yourself? The kids' game. Maybe it's the the sports they're playing, or whatever it may be, but there's business and there's personal priorities. But think about that for a moment. That's straight up like, if you're a Christian, that's a full on cognitive dissonance. It's a full on cognitive dissonance. If you are a Christian, by definition, your biggest priorities are God and his kingdom. That's, That's like the dictionary definition. Seek first his kingdom. But somehow, personal priorities and business outweigh that. So we're coming to church about a little less than once a month on on average. Now, take that a step further, and let's do an illustration. Let's pretend there is a husband and a wife, and they get married. Or they, they weren't husband and wife. They were boyfriend and girlfriend and get married. And now they're husband and wife. And for the first four years of marriage, the husband does nothing for the anniversaries. Now, if this is you, you should be feeling bad. Uh, First four, nothing, nothing. And then on the fifth anniversary, the husband goes, oh, honey, I love you so much, here's some roses, and I'd like to go out to, to a nice restaurant, and I got you a present. And then the wife's like, why now are you starting to celebrate our anniversary? And it's like, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of other things the first four years. A lot of busy things. I had other priorities the first four years, but now you're the priority. I'm here. Fifth anniversary. But then he waits another four to five years before he celebrates the next one. Now let's expand that even further and say, this couple brings children into the world. And children grow up seeing dad-only honoring mom once roughly every four to five, six anniversaries. So they see dad celebrate mom three times before they leave the house and about 15 times anniversaries went. What does that demonstrate about dad's love for mom to the kids? I mean, dad can tell them kids all he wants. Mom's the priority, I love her, she's the the queen of my heart. But what they see, what they observe is what holds true to them. So what happens to church folk who say, God is number one, and then things like Sunday are just, ah, when we can fit it into our very busy lives. More importantly, and this should be terrifying for you with children, it is for me, what does it say to your kids? See, you could tell your kids all day long, we're a Christian family, and we... We value God above everything, but if your schedule demonstrates a different truth, trust me, those kids observe everything. They see it and they know it. So they grow up with a compartmentalized God, a God that you can stick like in a cubby and you bring him out when you need him. And trust me, a compartmentalized God doesn't survive college. For your kids, that compartmentalized God dies at college. And in the Bay Area, the way things are going, he probably dies when they enter into junior high. So it's very, very, very difficult stuff. Now, the other thing is, research is pretty clear that actually attending church, truly like weekly, I mean, you don't have to be 100%, but let's say 80% or above. We're that type of church. B minus or above, you're good. Actually, we'll give you a C plus or above. 77% or more of the time, C plus, you're good. If you attend church regularly, this is statistically clear, you are happier than people who do not attend church weekly. Now, this is not only true of, like, Protestant Christians. This is true of Catholics and Jews with synagogues. You go, well, why? Should it only be, like, Christians who are more happy because they're countering the real God? No. There's a different reason. It has to do with what we talked about last week, is that when you have a life that has meaning and value given to it by transcendent ideas, namely a God, and you believe things like objectively love and morality and meaning are actually true, then your life is fueled by a different source. And so the Jew in the synagogue, the Catholic, the Protestant people who are attending the weekly religious things in general have a meaning infused into their life. Now, whether that meaning is true or not is irrelevant. You will be happier by making that a part of your rhythm. So you become less happy by having that regularly occurring religious practice. By the way, too, um, if you're less happy in life and you're only coming to church once every month, you are also statistically more likely to be less happy with your church. This is something pastors don't need stats to know. If you see someone only, uh, Dave Dave Whitaker's here, you're on sabbatical, so I won't ask you to testify to this. But if you haven't seen someone for seven weeks, you know you gotta reach out to them. Why? Not just because you miss them and you care, that's very important, but that creeps in, and you know it's a matter of time before that seven weeks become 10 weeks, and that 10 weeks becomes Christmas and Easter. So there's a very pragmatic reason for Sundays. It'll make you happier. It gives life and meaning. But there's something else about it, too. Um, The idea of Sundays or Sabbath is written into the fabric of time. So in Genesis chapter 1, you have this seven-day rhythm occurring for those of you who are musicians you'll get this a little bit more but if not everyone can understand it most of the music we we listen to today is written in something called four four it's the time signature of the song so it goes one two three four one two three four one two three four some stuff like the hymns three four every so often we won't make it complicated but most stuff's like one two three four one two three four there's a rhythm and you know like a good rhythm your your actual body wants to participate in it Like, if I were to put on the beginning of Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, you picture it? How many in your head? Like, half the room, you wouldn't even be consciously aware, your foot starts. And that's how you sing it because you don't know the word. No one understands what the heck he's saying. <laughs> Got a son, I can turn, turn, I and a one. It's a rhythm, and you get pulled into it. In creation, God establishes this rhythm: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you rest with the Sabbath. But it's not just the Sabbath, the seven days. There's, there's this idea of seven being a rhythm written into the calendar in the Bible is everywhere. So it's every seven years is a sabbatical year. And in a sabbatical year in the Old Testament, you let the land rest. So you don't grow your crops, your vegetables, your jalapenos, all that good stuff. You let the land rest every seven years. So first set seven days is a rest for a human, then every seven years there's rest for the land. But then there's also this thing called a jubilee year, and it's seven times seven years. So every 49 years, like all the debts in the land are erased. Yeah, yeah amen, That is. I'm living in the Bay Area. Oh, Lord, I believe in the year of jubilee. Every seven times seven. But then in addition to that, there's like a, Jubilee is like a super Sabbath. But then in the book of Daniel, there's also this weird like super, it, when, my kids used to just, when my kids try to describe something that's beyond super, it's super mega. So there's like this super mega Sabbath in the book of Daniel. And there's all kinds of debate about how it works and when it begins and when it ends. But the point is this, in the book of Daniel, there's a 70 times seven, like a, it's like 490 years then a super, super mega Sabbath takes place. That's when the Messiah comes and there's forgiveness of sins. It's so like every seven days there's rest for human, every seven years there's rest for land, every seven times seven there's forgiveness of like debt and then the super mega Sabbath is like there's forgiveness of sins. Now all of these things, when you come to the New Testament, are kind of like distilled into a super Sabbath. And the super Sabbath in the New Testament is something that the apostles picked up on. So they always celebrated Sabbath on Saturdays. Traditional Jews will still celebrate Shabbat, Sabbath on Saturday. Very early on in church history, the first followers of Jesus started celebrating Jesus on Sunday. It was like a new type of Sabbath's rest, a greater Sabbath's rest. And they did that because on Sunday was the day Jesus resurrected And there's beautiful imagery about this as a new creation and the beginning of a whole new week. But the point is this. Very early on in church history, Christians gathered every seven days on Sunday to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, which means every Sunday right now is a Easter. Easter's every Sunday. We have like a super mega Easter once a year, But every Sunday is an Easter service. It's the celebration of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you do it regularly. You do it consistently. So that pattern of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 is everywhere. And the early church adopted it. Now, it wasn't a law like in the Old Testament. There's a Sabbath law, and if you work on Shabbat, there's going to be punishment. But you gathered to celebrate The resurrected Jesus. So the the Sunday morning experience is not only something that's good for your soul, your spirit, and your family, but it's also something that's been kind of written into the fabric of God's calendar. But in addition to that, if, if that's not enough for the believer, which it should be, it's actually commanded. Like the king says, do this, one of the, the places that illustrates this best is in the book of Hebrews, and we don't have time to like unpack this, but it's so good. Hebrews is one of the most like dense books. One of, one of these days, we'll, we'll go through the book of Hebrews. I, I feel it's, it's just so heavy, so I feel a little inadequate for it at this point. But in chapter 10, there's a therefore statement, and in the next section, you're gonna see the command to gather but I wanted to give it a little bit of context. The author of Hebrews has been going on for 10 chapters talking about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in all things. And then he says, because Christ is sufficient and supreme and the Almighty One, therefore... This first sentence is alone, we should just like, we could stop here for the rest of the day. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Most religions throughout human history, you don't just get to have access to God. And in the Old Testament, in the Jewish system, Only one person got to have direct access to God for a brief moment once a year. The presence of God was was housed in the temple of God and specifically in the center part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. So this is a very sacred space that one dude, the high priest, enters on behalf of all the people once a year. So one dude, once a year, and he goes in there with fear and trembling because he is going to encounter the divine. Now listen to what the author of Hebrews just kind of throws in there. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter in the holy place by the blood of Jesus, you have confidence in going directly to God. What you do in a simple prayer is an activity that angels would fear and tremble over. Direct access to God with confidence because of the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by the new living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. Now if you're, you're new to Christianity, that's, like, that's weird imagery. Let me briefly describe what, what's going on. There's two images, and picture them like a low-res image and a high-res image. And the low-res image and the high-res image are like overlaid on each other. We've used this illustration before, but picture an overhead projector from back in the day. You know, you had those clear paper that you put on and you could like overlay them, and the really cool teachers would like put one, and then there'd be another one, and another one, and then like a new picture would emerge from all three of them. Those are the cool teachers. So there's like a low-res image and a high-res image, and the author is overlaying them on one another. The first image is that of the temple. He talks about, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain. What's the curtain? The curtain is the big curtain that guards the holy of holies in the temple. So it's the curtain that the high priest has to pass through in order to have that direct access to God. So the low res image, the first level image that you receive in the Old Testament about God and his presence is the temple. If you asked a Jew in the Old Testament, where is God? He would say everywhere, but he's specifically manifesting his presence in the temple on Jerusalem, the place where heaven and earth meet. So where is God? He's wrapped in the temple behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. That's the first image. By the, Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So this is subtle, but it's deep. In the New Testament, you get a different image about where the presence of God is. If you asked uh, one of the apostles in, in the first century, where's the presence of God? They would say, well, everywhere. But in the life of Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled. So Jesus, in the New Testament kind of imagery, is a living, walking, breathing temple. So how do you have access to God? Well, you have to go through the curtain in the temple, but there is no curtain in the temple anymore. What replaces that? It's Jesus and his flesh, meaning the death of Christ, hence the first line, you have access by the blood of Jesus. Jesus this beautiful imagery that's intertwined and interacting and being overlaid upon themselves. This great, beautiful news, and what are you to do in light of that news? You draw near to God, Now, here comes the command. You draw near to God, and then you, it says, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in the first slide, you are to draw near to God. In this section, you are to hold fast to the truth without wavering. And then the third thing you're supposed to do, the third key verb in this, verse 24, is you are to stir up one another to love and good works. Why do you have to stir one another up? Because you don't do love and good works by default. You're not that good of a person. I mean, that's the modern message. Most, you know, I'm I'm just a great person. By default, I'm just a natural, loving, compassionate, giving person. No, you're not. You're not that by default. You have to come together and stir each other up for love and good works. And then the command. How do you do this drawing near, this holding fast, this stirring up? Verse 25, by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. You draw near, you hold fast, you stir up. Why? Because you don't neglect meeting together. And the scary thing is that he throws in even 2,000 years ago, which is the habit of some. Is it the habit of you? Is it your habit? So scripture gives us pragmatic reasons. The stats are clear on that. It's good for your soul to attend regularly. It's good for your family. By the way, fathers, here's a scary, terrifying tat, stat, tattoo, tat, um, statistic. If a mother becomes a Christian in a household, there is roughly a 17% chance that the rest of the family becomes Christian. So if mom becomes Christian and she starts attending church regularly, there's roughly 17% chance that the rest of the family becomes Christian. If the dad does, 93%. Which, if you are not making Christ and his kingdom and Sundays and everything associated with and you're not taking that as a number one priority, and you're a dad in this room, that falls on you. You bear that weight. You get your family up. You don't put other priorities first. You man up and do what's right for your family. The fact that they will be happy, statistically happier, is enough reason alone. Women have been carrying the burden of this for far too long. Any pastor will tell you this. It's always mom holding the faith, while dad's staying at home, Doing whatever. It's mom dragging. It's grandma dragging. Some of we have dads here doing it too. So amen to you. But I can tell you, all across the country, it's moms trying to carry the weight of holding the family together emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Draw near, hold fast, stir up by not neglecting to meet, as is the habit of some. Now, what do we do on the, the Sunday morning? What's like, what's, what are the, the, the activities that are done on a Sunday morning, and why are they so important? There's this old saying, for those of you who have been in church like a long time, you're going to remember this, and you're going to be like, I never thought I'd hear this phrase again. Well, I'm bringing it back, because once something hasn't been cool for like 10 years, you just bring it back, and it's cool again. Do you remember like 10 years ago, it was, it was like, or like, I don't know how long ago, it was maybe reached that, like bell bottoms were cool again for a little window. Some of you are going like, bro, they were never not cool, got them all right now. <laughs> what we're waiting for though is, I don't know what they're called, but you know in the 80s, they're were, they were like MC Hammer pants, it was just like there was like color splattered everywhere, and they're like poofy. RJ Campos, it's time to bring them back. It's going to be cool. So these, this is what everyone would say back in the day about, like, church life. Church life is where you bring your time, your talents, and your treasures. And they all begun with T, so it's very helpful to remember. It's like time, talents, and treasures. So what, what did people mean by this? pretty straightforward. You come, you give of your time. And the talents, I think, was the most kind of... It was the worst word in this time, Talents and Treasures, because it always said everyone has a talent to, to share with the body of Christ. And I actually want to make it like, sim- more simple than that. Like, You don't even have to have a talent in a specific area for it to, to matter and have significance and to change the life of the church. Like, it's, it's always like we have to have a vision of ourselves or we're talented or doing something. How about you just show up and like say... Like, I'll take out the trash. Like, in a marriage, you don't say, hey, you're gifted, hon, to take out the trash, so you should do it. You just do it. You just do it. So there's this idea of you come to church and you give of your time, not only for your enrichment, but also, this is the talent section, you're doing something for someone else. That's why on Sunday mornings, we need, like, tons of volunteers. Tons of volunteers just to make it happen. There's tons of kids Getting Bible lessons right now, and it just doesn't happen. Like we haven't, we don't have the budget to automate that off to robots. Like we need real people committed. And let me tell you, a lot of the stuff in church, you don't need this grand vision where you got, you have talent and you use your gifts. Just show up, take out the trash, and it'll make a world of difference. And the treasure part has to do with giving of your money, giving of your money to His kingdom. So every week I've, I've challenged. Or the, every week in this series, what we'll do is we're gonna challenge you to take a small area in your life where you have real life responsibility and you actually have the power to change what's in that small sphere. You can make a commitment to something right now to fix some sin issue in your life. And the idea is that as that grows, God would give us more and more responsibility. So today, here's today's challenge for this week. Everyone has a, in your, um, I forgot mine, I forget things. I'm a dad of three. I don't sleep. Everyone has one of these in your handout. It's pretty straightforward. Today, we dealt with the purpose inside. We talked about Sundays, and specifically Sundays dealing with our time, our service, and our money, and how that's an important Christian activity. So on this card, what I'd like everyone to do is commit to something. Now before you do that, not everyone has to commit because you're also going to be asked to commit the next two Sundays and don't not show up because when pastors tell the church that they're going to ask them to commit to things, that's when you frequently have other priorities. Um, But what I'm going to ask you to do is if you're not attending church consistently and regularly, I want you to check down at the bottom that today I'm going to take responsibility for this little sphere. I'm going to make a commitment to make regular church attendance a priority. That's number five on the back of this. Maybe you're saying, I'm attending pretty regularly, but maybe you're not giving, you're not giving. So you're gonna say, you know what, I'm gonna commit to consistently giving financially to this church and for the mission of this church. All of this takes money. And as you're gonna hear next week, it's not all about Sundays or what we do. We give away hundreds of thousands of dollars all across for mission efforts, locally and globally. It takes money, it takes resources. So maybe you're gonna make a commitment to become a regular giver. Or maybe you're in that camp where like, you, it's sort of like Sundays. You go, no, I attend regularly. But regularly means once a month. And so you're giving sort of like that too. It's maybe 2%, 3% of your income and you know you're not sacrificially giving with a generous heart. You can commit to that. And then for others, you might be called into serving on a on one of our Sunday service teams, ushers, greeters, working with children. And so for you, your commitment might be to sign up for one of our teams. We're launching this big thing, SVCC Teams. It's being reworked on the webpage. We're organizing how we do volunteers and and these teams differently. And so we want you to think about joining a team. We want every single person on a team and today you're hearing about teams that function on Sunday morning, but next week you'll hear about teams that are outside of the physical church walls. So maybe you're like, well I'm not gonna serve for any of these things because I hate all this stuff, but I wanna feed the homeless. That's cool, next week come and there'll be that as we talk about the purpose outside and you can commit to that. So in the next few weeks we're gonna challenge everybody to take one step forward and deal with the small areas that might be out of alignment. As you go out, you can sign this and, oh, by the way, if, if you're committing to, to giving, don't put your name on that. We don't wanna know that. I don't know who gives at this church. Never wanna be tempted into partiality. It's really easy to be nice to annoying church members if you know they give tons of money. <laughs> partiality is a sin, it's a big problem. So I don't know, if you commit to giving, I don't wanna know that, I don't wanna know your name. But if it's anything else, put your name there, If it's a team, we'll contact you on your way out. There's some booths and some ushers. You put those in there, and if you're joining a Sunday service team, you're going to get a little matching blue give team little wristband just as a reminder to you about your commitment today. At least wear it for the rest of the day to remind yourself. Some of you, as soon as you make a commitment, you know it's gone. So you wear that bracelet. You remember, i got to (laughs) serve. Ushers, please come forward with communion. How many times did Paul write each phrase? Our Lord, 53. My Lord, 1. So we enter to communion. I'd like us to focus in on that. If you're new to Christianity or you're not a Christian, um, you're, if specifically you're not a Christian, you don't feel obligated to, to do this with us. This is something that Christians do. Um, so if you are a Christian, please take uh, the elements with us. Um, but if not, you can, or you have questions, just let it go by, no problem. Sundays is where we get together and do the Our Lord thing. After a week full of human words, we encounter the divine word. After a week full of human images and pictures, we behold the true image, the image of the Son of God. After a week of commuting, we come to commune. Jesus works so we rest. Jesus dies so we live. And we come together and declare that corporately as the family of God. Now, what's the fuel for all of this stuff we're talking about? Why do you give money? Why do you give time? Why do you give all of this effort? What's the fuel? What's the motivation? It's found in the one time Paul uses the phrase, my Lord. This is the only time Paul says my lord. Philippians 3:8, and it's the fuel for everything we do. Paul the apostle says, "Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." In other words, you don't do this because you're sacrificing for the gospel or you're sacrificing for Jesus. You do all these things because Jesus is worth more anything this world can offer you. And you do it with joy and generosity out of a cup that overflows because of what Christ has done in your life. As we take communion, I thought I'd put those three things like time, talents, and treasure under the, ba- the, 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 the banner of kingship because God's kingdom isn't a democracy. It's not socialism. It's not any of the, the way these earthly systems work. God's kingdom is a monarchy. There's a king and we're all his people. And so every Sunday, what do we do? We come together to re-pledge allegiance to our king. We give our money because we pay tribute to a king, and we honor him. And we give service. We sign up for service in a spiritual battle that is real and matters and gives meaning to our reality. So please stand with me. The bread represents the body of Christ broken on our behalf. He does this for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we remember your sacrifice, not ours. The cup represents the blood of Christ. The scriptures tell us that we are to drink it and continue to claim, proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. In other words, when we drink, we re-pledge our allegiance. And we do it every Sunday because it's good for our soul and we need it. Lord, we proclaim you until you return. Father God, as we enter into a time of worship, may we exalt you. May the name of your son Jesus be lifted high. For he is king of kings and Lord of Lords. Push us forward in moving forward with our lives. Help us to to clean up the smallest spheres of influence that we have. Lord, we love you. May your name be lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen.